Hello, voyeurs and velociraptors and all the ships at sea, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to them about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host. Michael Hull. And our guest today, this is very exciting, is a a peerless film historian uh, and author of several books, including Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes Hollywood, but she is best known for her meticulously researched and endlessly entertaining podcast, You Must Remember This, which just kicked off its new season, Erotic 90s. Here she is, gang, the one, the only, Karina Longworth. Hi, Karina. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this and to do this in person. This is a (laughs) rare occasion where we've got someone in the room uh, so we can actually like talk like real human beings instead of over (laughs) a Zoom, which is always nice. Um, But I really wanted to have you on when the new season was starting because, you know, what you're doing in, in these two seasons now, this sort of massive undertaking is really interesting and really exceptional and uh and looking at these films with with a kind of breadth and depth that not a lot of people have afforded them what made you decide to explore this topic of you know of erotic films in general erotic thrillers in particular uh, at this length in this kind of detail well i had thought for a long time about maybe doing a uh, like a photo book, like a coffee table book called Erotic 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then during 2020, you know, like a lot of people, I think I, I had more time for watching movies and and was sort of interested in watching movies that made me feel something <laughs> different than what we were all feeling. And yeah. I found myself gravitating towards watching movies like Black Widow and Jagged Edge, kind of forgotten 80s erotic thrillers for the most part and I revisited Indecent Proposal which I had seen a lot but hadn't seen in a while and I you know just kind of was trying to figure out like why I enjoy these movies so much and how you know thinking about how different they are from movies that are being made today and and how the movie for adults has kind of disappeared and um even more you know people I think people talk a lot about how there is very little sex in in current Hollywood cinema but more than that I think movies just for an adult audience that are excluding a child audience or a family audience don't really exist and so I wanted to try to like figure out what this period was when these movies were getting made and and how did it begin and how did it end and and so I always knew I was going to do both erotic 80s and erotic 90s because the what I came up with pretty early on was this idea that Eyes Wide Shut is the end of something in 1999 mm-hmm. and I wanted to work backwards to 20 years before that right so you know the 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 prelude uh, episode, which which it was the beginning for for the second season for the erotic '90s season, is I, I I think, and I say this as a fan of your show, I think one of the best things you've ever done. Oh wow, thank you. And I, I because it you take such time and and devote such energy to understanding the atmosphere around what was happening on screen, which, it, you know, is, is anyone who listens to either of these podcasts knows is a big deal to us as well. But to sort of dive into that kind of depth. Um, did you know going in that like that you were going to really get into like second wave feminism and, you know, and, and the social issues that were surrounding these films at, at this kind of in this kind of detail at this kind of depth? Well, I collect magazines and mm. Ms. Magazine is a magazine that I've collected for a few years and I've found it to be an interesting snapshot of of kind of mainstream um, doctrinaire feminism <laughs> of the moment you know, that the magazine is being published. And then I also started, at the beginning of Erotic Ages, I started collecting Playboy as well. And so those are two really interesting polls um, that can allow you to understand, you know, two views on a specific moment. And so, um, yeah, I think I think I realized that those things were important 
pretty early on. Also, um, I talk about this in the very beginning of erotic 80s, and of course it comes up in erotic 90s too, but for me, one of the fundamental images of this whole thing was the image an indecent proposal of the receptionist reading the Susan Faludi book Backlash. And so I had never read Backlash, you know, cover to cover. I'd read bits of it. And so very early in the process, I read that book and um, was able to understand, you know, it was published, I think, in 90 or 91, but it's basically about events of the 80s. And so it was really influential for me in understanding the 80s. Um, but then also it is coming out at the beginning of the nineties. And so it, you know, that was very important in terms of erotic nineties as well. You know, one of the other things that I really like about this series is that you are able to make it personal and talk about yourself in a way that you're not always able to, that isn't maybe always appropriate, but that Mm. certainly helps us as people who've been listening to you for so long, kind of get to know you and your background a little bit. And I think maybe my favorite thing in that first episode was talking about being a kid in the video store (laughs) browsing in the cult section near the adult section and like catching that that glimpse Mm -hmm. of 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 the verboten of the things we weren't supposed to see Mm -hmm. and it almost makes me wonder and I don't know it's just as a theory that that I think also part of this kind of interest and nostalgia for erotic films and for erotic thrillers among people of our rough generation I'm a couple years older than you is that we really were the last generation where erotica was not available at the click of a button where it like took work to see people having sex on screen <laughs> and do you think that's i don't know should should we uh, is there some nostalgia for that present do you think i think what's what i feel nostalgia for i can only speak for myself is the narrative the narrativization of sex mm-hmm. um you know now it it is quite easy to see naked bodies and to see any sort of depiction of any sexual activity that you want but I miss, you know, even something like Red Shoe Diaries or a Shannon Tweed movie that, like, tries to create some kind of narrative dramatic scaffolding around the gratuitous sexuality. Great, great. No, that totally makes sense. Um, so the the second season is, is underway now. Um, how many episodes do you think it's ultimately going to be? Because it sounds like it's sort of become a bigger thing than you envisioned. Yeah, it's all sketched out. It's 21 episodes. Holy and, crap. and so That's great. Um, there's going to be 14 that run consecutively, and then I'm going to take a little summer hiatus and then do seven more. I've already produced the first 14, and I know what the final seven are going to be. That's great. Well, I can't can't wait to hear all of them. It's it's a, it's. I mean, you know this. It's a terrific show, but it's a, a wonderful season and a really juicy topic it's really like the best movie podcast i mean we make movie podcasts (laughs) and it's really the best one yeah of all the movie podcasts i mean that's sort of obvious to everybody right that's like a given (laughs) yes okay fearless okay so when we talked about doing the show and picking a very good year we you know to tie into the season what year did you decide to do and why i've been finding as i do erotic 90s that my favorite year is 1993 um, and, you know, there's a, three episodes of the podcast that deal with films from 1993. Um, there's an episode about Madonna and Body of Evidence. Oh, yeah. There's uh, <laughs> Indecent Proposal and Sliver, which is one of the films we're going to talk about today. And I just picked Sliver because it's my favorite of those three. I cannot wait to hear why. <laughs> uh, before we get to that, though, Mike is going to uh, sort of situate us in the year outside of the multiplex. Let's hear some headlines. 
In January was the START II treaty between the U.S. and the sort of transitioning Soviet Union, mm-hmm. Russian Federation situation signed by Boris Yeltsin and the Chemical Weapons Convention, which limited chemical weapons. So that solved those problems forever? Yeah, great, great. Nothing to worry about. Cool. I, William Jefferson Clinton, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully this is our time, he said. Let us embrace it. The man from Arkansas fulfills his dream to become president of the United States. Later that month, Bill Clinton was sworn in as the 43rd president of the United States. Uh-huh. I'm like over that. Him, that, the whole. <laughs> this was the first president I ever voted for. Um, and appropriately enough, the first president who ever disappointed me greatly. So it's it was uh, all of a piece there. Thanks, Bill. I just, it's very hard for all, I'm just so sort of like uh, traumatized by the arrival of Newt Gingrich that mm-hmm. that sort of overwhelms the Clinton era for Fair me. Enough. This is Channel 2 News at 5. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Bernie Anastas. And I'm Carol Martin. We continue now our coverage of the terror that has struck the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. Police say that it may, in fact, have been a bomb, a massive bomb, that caused an explosion to rip through the PATH train station below the Trade Centers just after noon today, sending shockwaves through the buildings where as many as 100,000 people were at work. The explosion has killed four, that is the number at this hour, and it has injured more than 200 all day long. A steady stream of survivors emerged from two of the world's tallest buildings. But many, of course, are still trapped inside, and rescue crews say it may be hours before they are all evacuated. In February was the first World Trade Center bombing, wherein a van parked underneath, in the parking lot underneath the World Trade Center, one of the buildings exploded, killed six, and injured more than a 1,000, but did not knock the building over. Well, and thank goodness they made sure that nothing like that would ever happen again. Yep. Lots of things <clears throat> got wrapped up in 93. Yep. <laughs> At the end of history. <laughs> <laughs> March 31st, actor Brandon Lee is accidentally killed during the filming of The Crow. Did not care for that. No. At least it happened before the era of Twitter conspiracy theories, though. Yeah. God. Under the blistering Texas sun, investigators comb the smoldering remains of the Branch Davidian compound. More than 80 people are believed to have died in yesterday's fiery conclusion to the 51-day siege, 24 of them children. Today, the FBI said it's not responsible for the deaths. Those children are dead because David Koresh had them killed. There's no question about that. He had those fires started. He had 51 days to release those children. He chose those children to die. We didn't have anything to do with their deaths. In April, the siege at Waco, Texas ended when someone lit the Branch Davidian compound on fire. Everyone who was over 18 in this story is an asshole and <laughs> did not get what they deserved. And Fair. none of the children got what they deserved either, which is... Yes. Yes. That's a, that was a terrible story. Yeah. I have so many good, like, personal memories of 1993, but when you look at the news... Everything in the news is like, garbage. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. In June, mathematician Andrew Wiles presented his proof of Fermat's last theorem, a problem that had gone unsolved for more than 300 years. This is actually very cool. There should be a movie about it if there isn't. It's one of those times when math becomes a story and people like me who can barely count their fingers get to like mm-hmm. participate in math. <laughs> are, you, are we sure he wasn't a janitor at Harvard? Because there may be a movie <laughs> if that's the case. No? 
<laughs> Not that I, I know of. I think he's right, recognized fine. as a mathematician. Fair enough. It is that loss of control that left dozens of American soldiers pinned down in the weekend fighting that killed 12 and wounded 75. According to correspondent Huband, the UN forces badly underestimated the Somali gunmen. It's important to remember that the initial force of 100 troops who went in to do the arrests, which were the, the purpose of the initial mission on Sunday, um, were sent in to the most volatile and dangerous part of Mogadishu. In 1993, saw the Battle of Mogadishu, later fictionalized and turned into propaganda in the film Black Hawk Down. Great movie. Good movie. Mm -hmm. The <laughs> Pentagon thinks so too, Jason. <laughs> I know. In September uh, was the famous handshake between Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat and Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin after they signed the Oslo Accords and solved that problem. Yeah, super cool. Worked out. In November, the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act was signed. And so we haven't had gun violence in America since. Yep, great. Super cool. Worked out. And in December, they killed Pablo Escobar. So there's been no more drug war. So Awesome. 1993, dude. We wrapped it all up. <laughs> yeah. Good Lord. Productive year. <laughs> we lost a lot of good folk in 93 uh, and some actors, too. Audrey Hepburn, River Phoenix, Andre the Giant, civil rights leader Cesar Chavez, uh, Ferruccio Lamborghini, responsible for many posters on my walls in the 80s. <laughs> Uh, Thurgood Marshall, Conway Twitty, Frank Zappa, Gigi Allen caused a riot in the Lower East Side and then OD'd like a real fucking rock star. He did. Uh, Willie Moscone, greatest pool player. I mean, yeah, watch watch Willie Moscone play pool on YouTube. The guy's, he, he doesn't believe in physics. Uh, Arthur Ashe passed in 93, Vincent Price, Dizzy Gillespie, Joseph Mankiewicz, friend of the show, I think. He gets mm -hmm. mentioned regularly mm -hmm. on this show. I think we can yeah. call him a friend. And yep. Myrna Loy passed away in 93. I think the last four are going to be the, the dream blunt rotation for this week. Vincent Price, Dizzy Gillespie, Joseph Mankiewicz, and Myrna Loy. Th that might be more of like a dream uh, Manhattan Yeah, there we go. We'll drink, we'll drink, some, we'll drink some, some Manhattans. <laughs> Can together. I ask you a question? <laughs> yeah. I've never known what blunt rotation means. I will. Mike actually is, would be probably a better... Um, uh, uh, description. Oh, it's it's for it smoking. It's for smoking yeah. marijuana. The I idea see. of like who who you might like to share an okay. evening of 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 that with. I thought it was sex somehow, <laughs> but because it the way people talk about it, they. I make mean, it I'm seem looking like at this that. list, and probably that'd be fine too. The last four. All right, go ahead, Mike. <laughs> Dizzy Gillespie was looked good in a suit. He, he had did. that little. He had that little that little triangle chin beard yeah. thing going. Yeah. Handsome man. Lillian Gish, uh, Helen Hayes, Sun Ra, aforementioned on this show. Yep. Albert Collins, Hector Laveau, Raymond Burr, Fred Gwynn, first known to me as TV's Herman Munster. Mm -hmm. Loved that. My family loved that show. <laughs> uh, Mario Moreno, a.k.a. Mexican superstar Cantinflas, uh -huh. Don Amici, and last but never least, the maestro uh, Federico Fellini. Died on Halloween in 1993. All right. Yes, so. sir. If blunt rotation was sex, Don, Don Amici would be in mine. <laughs> now, I really have a the, huge crush on him. Here's the question. Like, 40s era Don Amici? 30s, or 40s. Like, okay, 30s, not, 40s. not cocoon era I mean, on it, what is the uh, David Mamet movie he's in? Things that change. Yeah, the, he's still pretty good there. Okay, too. fair. fair. <laughs> I admire your, your flexibility on this point. Good. That's a good window. Yeah. Let's bang through some sports real quick. Chicago Bulls beat the Phoenix Suns to finish the first their uh three peat of the decade. 
Good, good. Yep. That was a big deal. In cricket, Shane Warne bowled the ball of the century to Mike Gadding in the first test at Old Trafford. The pitch would uh, have more influence on the, than the overall game, signaling a new trend in cricket. Um, it's on YouTube. Check it out. This is just bait. This is just you trolling me, and I refuse to take the bait. I'm not going to talk about fucking cricket with you. <laughs> you watch like four hour movies, but not this. Here we only go. takes a few seconds. Moving In horse on. racing, Julie Crone became the first woman to win a triple crown race when she rode Colonial Affair to victory at the Belmont. Great. Good for her. Steffi Graf won pretty much everything in women's tennis that year. And finally, in sports movie news, the Anaheim Mighty Ducks played their first season as a real, actual NHL team God. after being nothing more than an Emilio Estevez movie, right? Is, am I remembering that correctly? Stupid, stupid story. Yes. Yes, right. but that is still like a going NHL franchise. So the movies live in very weird places. That's headlines. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. All right, Karina, you ready to do a top five? Sure. All right, so we, uh, we, we, we talked a lot about what the sort of format was going to be and how Karina wanted to go, and I think we ultimately landed on the idea that we wanted to talk about five movies that you've, that you've sort of revisited through the years uh, that sort of still hold up, your, your five favorites from 93 that like still work for you. Um, I actually think of it more like these are the movies that I saw many, many, many times <laughs> from 1993. It's and most of the most of the times I saw most of them were in the 90s. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, and we decided to instead of trying to rank them, we would walk through them in chronological order. So we're going to begin uh, in February, unsurprisingly. Uh, but on February 12th, which seems like a real missed opportunity, but what is the first of your five films, Karina? Groundhog Day. Bill is back. Don't drive angry. Back in charge. Back in action. I'm not going to live by their rules anymore. Back in shape. Don't you worry about cholesterol, love handles? Why? Back <laughs> for the craziest day of his life. Yes! Bill Murray. Groundhog Day. Rated PG. Sneak preview February 6th. All right. Directed by Harold Ramis, of course, starring Bill Murray. And uh, what do you this? I just remember this one really coming out of left field It being like, oh, it's another sort of, you know, SNL star. And then this, the, the, the afterlife of this movie has just been astonishing. Why do you why do you think this movie holds such sway? It's a great movie. Aside from it being a great movie, we talk about a lot of great movies. Yeah. I, I mean, I just think it, it has this, um, you know, such high concept that really works. And it, and it's um like in erotic 80s i talk a lot about this idea of high concept like the sort of don simpson movie right. where you can do an elevator pitch you can do a one sentence description of what it is and and groundhog day is that but it doesn't feel like it's this cynical sellout blockbuster um it feels more personal than that um and you know i think i think it's um it's funny it's romantic it's wacky um it's kind of an action movie sometimes and it was certainly perfect for me as a 12-year-old. Um, you know, almost four out of these five movies are movies that I saw um, by myself at the Universal Studios Cineplex Odeon. Oh, wow. Um, my dad would—I didn't really have a social life, and my dad would just, like, drop me off at the movies, and I would sometimes see the same movie twice in a row. Sometimes I'd see two movies in a day. Um, and so all of these movies are movies that I, like, saw— more than once in the theater and I have like pretty vivid memories of being 
I think this was when we had year-round school, which meant that instead of having like three months off at summer, you had two months off in summer and two months off at mm-hmm. winter. And so I think I was out of school at the time and it was, you know, winter vacation was just taking forever <laughs> because it began like the week of Christmas and it just kept going and um, there was just nothing to do except go to the movies. And, and so, so you felt a, a personal connection to what, yeah. what Bill Murray's going <laughs> every, through. Every morning I woke up and there was still nothing to do. <laughs> yeah. No, I know what you mean. And it is, it is a movie that grows on you with repeat viewings because, you know, that first time, of course, it's hilariously funny and Bill Murray's great. And it, and the script is extremely clever in terms of like working through all the possible possibilities of this concept. But then the more you see it, the more the sort of the the heartwarming stuff feels less like window dressing and more like what they're actually there to do. I've said before, I feel like it's the closest thing we got except for maybe a movie we'll talk about later, to a Frank Capra movie in the 1990s. Mm. Like, it has that kind of warmth of spirit to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, for sure. And, you know, you were saying it's sort of a, an SNL guy movie, but for me, I had a very deep relationship with Bill Murray because of <laughs> owning Ghostbusters on VHS. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, he was always my favorite Ghostbuster. <laughs> and um, I was, you know, there weren't that many opportunities to see him star in a movie at this time. Right. And, and um, I, you know, was really excited. I, I went to see Groundhog Day because I was a huge Bill Murray fan. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a terrific movie. Where do you land on Andy McDowell? I know she's come up occasionally in the in the the series. I like her. You know, I know sometimes her acting has been criticized, um, but I think when she's well cast, she's great. And I think she's well cast in this. She's very well cast in this. All right. Well, that uh, that's Groundhog Day. We're going to move on. We're moving on into the, 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 well, the summer. I mean, it's by this time in, in film history, summer was beginning about the first weekend of May. Uh, and this was a, was intended to be a big summer blockbuster released on May 21st, 1993, directed by Philip Noyce, and uh, not a sequel per se, but in many ways a spiritual sequel to a giant hit movie of the previous year. Uh, Karina, what film is that? It's Sliver. Yeah. From the moment she moved in, someone was watching someone who sees her every move. Four people died here in two years. Sharon Stone, William Baldwin, Tom Berenger. At 113 East 38th Street, the view from the outside is nothing compared to the view inside. Sliver, rated R. Starts Friday, May 21st at theaters everywhere. Starring Sharon Stone and written by Joe Esterhaus, which is why I guess people thought of it as a follow-up to Basic Instinct. But as as I talk about on the podcast and the episode about it, I think it's kind of the opposite of Basic Instinct. It's kind of the opposite movie. Um, First of all, the thing that I think people loved about Sharon Stone and Basic Instinct that made her a star is is the sort of strength of personality and and the, um, you know, fuck you attitude and... Uh, and the fuck me <laughs> attitude, and um, and her character in Sliver is just it could not be more different. I right. mean, she's a, a a woman who's left like a bad, unsatisfying marriage. She's very vulnerable and scared. Mm-hmm. Um, she seems like she's never enjoyed sex in her life until she meets Billy Baldwin, mm-hmm. um, and it's you know it it's just a really it's a completely different character, and I think she makes it a different person. I think her performance in this movie is really great. Um, there's a lot of things about Sliver that are kind of silly. There's a glass volcano that's part of the plot. <laughs> there sure is. But 
I really like it, and I I really liked it in 1993. It was I don't I really don't understand how I was able to go see so many R-rated movies in the theater. I guess they just didn't so you care. Were, you were literally 12 years old when yeah I oh turned 13 God. in July of 1993. <laughs> so I definitely saw Sliver two or three times at the Universal Studios Cineplex Odeon. I can't remember when that became City Walk. Mm-hmm. I think maybe it was 94, so it wasn't quite City Walk yet. Yeah. If, for people who don't know Los Angeles, like. There's Universal Studios and there's a movie theater and then they built a mall called CityWalk to connect the two of them. And I spent many, 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 many days and nights there in the 1990s. Um, But yeah, I just I saw this movie so many times and then I saw it on video. And and then, you know, I went through a phase of thinking like uh, feeling ashamed because I like Silver Mm -hmm. so much. And then for a while, when I was about 22 or 23, I was um, subletting an apartment in San Francisco with this woman who was about 10 years older than me who was on like mental health disability. So she just got paid to stay home and, you know, because she had mental health issues and couldn't work. And so she would spend all day long painting and like watching one of four movies on VHS. Okay. And three of them were Hitchcock movies and the other was Sliver. Wow. And she ranked Sliver, you know, right there with Rear Window and Vertigo. And then that, you know, allowed me to release all inhibitions about loving Sliver. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, the thing that's fascinating about it is that, yeah, it has, you know, these two sort of crossover um, uh, artists from Basic Instinct, but then the rest, of it, like, it's it's this incredibly classy pedigree. Like, when the opening credits unrolled, I hadn't seen it. I rewatched it for this, but I hadn't seen it since opening weekend. And it's like, holy shit, Vilma Zygmunt shot this, and it's based on an Ira Levin novel, and Richard Silbert is the production designer, so it's like it's got Rosemary's Baby's vibes to it. Um, I was really taken with it um, and, and, by, uh, and enjoyed reassessing it a bit, although I remain deeply disturbed by the way that Billy Baldwin pronounces the word panties. He just, he hits that <laughs> T way too hard. It's really uncomfortable to listen. And he says it a lot in that scene. Okay, but that was, that was Sliver. Uh, now, about three, two, three weeks later came the biggest hit of the summer of 1993 on, on June 9th, the movie that you cannot talk about movies in 1993 without talking about. And luckily, it's a movie that Karina likes very much. So what is the next film on our list? Jurassic Park. All right. We've made living biological attractions so astounding that they'll capture the imagination of the entire planet. The most phenomenal discovery of our time. Welcome to Jurassic Park becomes the greatest adventure of all time. Can I touch it? Universal Pictures presents a Steven Spielberg film, Jurassic Park, rated PG-13. And uh, what is your, first of all, let's just start tactile. What's the specific memory of like going to see Jurassic Park for the first time? I can't remember the first time because I saw it basically every week that summer. <laughs> I mean, I really, I truly had nothing to do except for go to the movies. It's so. very heartwarming to find out how similar our tween years were, <laughs> Karina, because, uh, yeah, yeah. This, this all sounds very familiar. Well, growing up in Los Angeles, you couldn't just, like, walk to somebody's house. It was right. really hard to see friends over the summer. And my dad, I, I lived with a single dad who worked, and so... What I could do is like drive into work with him in Century City and then spend the whole day at the Century City Mall where yeah. there was a multiplex or like take the bus from Century City to Westwood where there are a bunch of movie theaters. And so I kind of saw everything. But Jurassic Park was, you know, it Jurassic Park played for six months. Yeah. So like you could always see Jurassic Park. Yeah. If there was nothing else you wanted to see. 
with movies that are that iconic, sometimes it's difficult to tr- sort of re-examine them just as movies and understand what makes them work. But what do you think makes Jurassic Park work so well? Why is it such a like little Swiss watch of a blockbuster? Yeah, I mean, it is difficult to to set, kind of separate it out. You're but right. I mean, I'm not really a Spielberg guy. Like, mm. I'm I'm not that interested in most of his movies, and not that impressed by them beyond at the technical level. Mm-hmm. Um, for, with Jurassic Park, it was, I think, again, it, like the high concept is pretty undeniable. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, j- I think that I think you know p- people who maybe grew up with the Indiana Jones movies might um, argue that they do a better job of what I'm about to talk about. But I think in terms of, of him recycling his influences from the past Mm. and, and from genre films of Hollywood history, both high and low, Mm -hmm. I think Jurassic Park, um, is sort of the most brilliant in terms of pastiche. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's also like, it's a pretty good script. (laughs) It's pretty, it's pretty memorable in terms of dialogue and the dinosaurs look fucking great. They still they look still fucking, look fucking great. great. Like if you like, you can watch the 4K of that movie, and they still look great. And this is one of, you mentioned Annie McDowell earlier. I was a little bit of a weird compare. Like, and you said like if she's well cast, she's great, right? He's really well cast as the director of this movie. Like I know that's not exactly the right yes. wording, but all of his technical abilities are very important to making this movie what it is. And to making it play, because if you don't believe those dinosaurs, the fucking movie doesn't work. Yeah. Other than the Avatar movies, I can't remember a movie-going experience in my life after Jurassic Park where I was told that I was going to see something that was technologically advanced beyond what I had ever seen, and then when I saw it, I was actually impressed. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah, I I remember a similar experience. Mike, this... uh, my memory is inexplicable sometimes, but I remember so clearly that you saw Jurassic Park at least twice in its <laughs> opening weekend. I remember that with crystal clarity. Uh, that you are you you too are not a Spielberg guy, as Karina said, nor particularly a blockbuster guy. And uh, and even this one proved that you're not made of wood. You said uncle to uh, to Jurassic Park. It's a very good movie. It really is. And it's one of those <laughs> the thing is like '93 is really is special to me because that was the year you taught me like how to love movies. And like why we love movies. Mm. Like that's a thing you did for me. Like my family, <laughs> my wow. family isn't really movies weren't that big of a deal. Like, and now my father watches TCM for like, I mean, hours and hours a day. My father will talk to you about, right? Like, Yay. I don't know when that happened though. It's fantastic. I love it. I told yeah. him he needs to watch Intruders yeah. in the Dust. He was super into it, you know? There but you go. like at that point, I didn't really understand why people like movies that much. But like going to the movies with you, you were very infectious about all yeah. this stuff, you know? And <laughs> you talked about it as... Uh, and it, as an artistic expression, but also like it was just it's fucking Jurassic Park. Dude, it's Groundhog Day. Like it's just these are just great, enjoyable things. And I that was also the year that we put on like 10 of us put on flower print house dresses from the theater fucking costume department and went to a midnight screening of, of uh, Rocky Horror. Yeah, Like that was the year you taught me to love movies. Like, so this was going back to this and rewatching these and, and sort of like just looking at the list from that year was just, was a very emotional experience yeah. for me. I, I enjoyed this episode. <laughs> All right. So next up, number four of five, this is one that was playing, uh, playing through the year at some, uh, 
some festivals and garnering a little bit of buzz and then finally sort of slipped out into into smaller markets on uh, September 24th. 1993. Karina, what is the number four movie on the list? Dazed and Confused. George Washington, man, he was in a cult. And the cult was in the aliens, man. You didn't know that? Uh, Somewhere between free love and safe sex. Benny! Tie-dye and button fly. We should be up for anything. Ed Sullivan and MTV. Sounds stupid, doesn't it? There was a generation. The 60s rocked. The 70s, they obviously sucked. That was dazed and confused. Maybe the 80s will be radical. Rated R. Now playing at select theaters. Yes. Now, this, this, you want to talk about a movie that grows with age. Tell me why, why you love Days and Confused so much. So it kind of came out of the perfect time for me. I just turned 13 and was kind of making this transition into being a teenager. I was getting really into music. Um, I had not smoked pot, but I was really excited and looking, <laughs> looking for opportunities to do so. Um, and, it became kind of this, even though it was set in the 70s and I was in the 90s, a lot of the fashion was kind of coming back right. into, into fashion in 1993. And it became this kind of Bible for me of this is what, you know, I have to look forward to when mm-hmm. I get to high school mm-hmm. in a year and a half. Right. Um, and yeah, I just a, another movie that I saw a lot um, later on VHS, but in person at Universal Studios <laughs> multiple times. That just blows my mind the juxtaposition of those ideas because like I don't even know if this one came to Wichita, Kansas where we're from and if not it was in like you know the little sort of tucked away theater like three months later but. Yeah I think this was the kind of movie where it maybe started at an art house mm-hmm. um, and then was successful enough that the you know the a multiplex that had 18 screens was like okay we'll show it twice a day right um and again not much to do for me um so what like was definitely not somebody who was going to spend my weekend doing homework yeah um so (laughs) i would like skip the homework and just hang out at the movies all day and so yeah, seeing seeing Dazed and Confused a lot, it became a movie that were I mean Jurassic Park too, but a movie that I basically memorized in mm. terms of knowing exactly what line was coming up and like getting excited for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I you know I later became friends with one of the actors in it, Wiley Wiggins, oh, yeah. um, who plays this sort of young freshman. Yeah, and our window so, into the movie really. Yeah, and it's you know always interesting to like kind of. Re- Re, um, reframe the film through knowing him and through mm. knowing a little bit of his experience. That's amazing. That, yeah, and, and of course this has now become one of these movies that is well known for being the launch pad for like so many famous people, so many uh, young stars sort of getting their start in this movie. Did Was there anyone that you sort of as... I, I've had the experience where I'll spot someone in a movie who I really like who's not a star and I'll sort of like ping them and keep track of them in the years going forward was there anyone like that for you in this movie parker posey yeah yeah um and then you know i think i had affleck blindness for a long time like (laughs) certain like maybe because i hate his character and this is so hateful yeah um but i you know i'm sure i saw many ben affleck movies and really had no idea who he was until goodwill hunting yeah yeah it's a wonderful movie i i will confess that the first time i saw it it didn't come to Wichita. I remember this. I saw it for the first time on VHS after hearing for six months how great it was. And I put it in the first time, and I didn't know what to make of it. I did not have a lot of experience with sort of 
plotless cinema, really. And I was like, where is this going? What's going on? And I didn't really get it. And didn't watch it again for a few years. And then the, the next time I saw it, I got it, like, immediately, you know? Yeah. The, I love a hangout movie. It is such a... It is, like, the definitive hangout movie. It's the old. That movie felt movie. so real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was 16, 17, like, smoking yeah. an enormous amount of reefer, probably ate, right. like, 40 or 50 tabs of acid that year. Like, I mean, like, yeah. that movie felt so real to me. New new dudes no. like McConaughey, you know what I mean? Like, definitely, like, it yeah. felt, that, that movie felt shockingly real. No, I mean, we saw it at the same time, but we were having very, very different high school experiences <laughs> at the time. All right, so uh, that brings us to the end of the year. And I, I, I actually love this because there are a lot of there were a lot of big award winners and, you know, big prestige movies at the end of the year. But uh, Karina chose a film that came out uh, on December 8th of 93 that sort of sort of got overwhelmed by all of those movies at the moment, but has aged really well. And Karina, what is the last of your films? Six Degrees of Separation. I read somewhere that everybody on this planet is separated by only six other people. How everyone is a new door opening into other worlds. I, I'm so sorry to bother you, but... I've been hurt and I've lost everything. Hello. Oh, this is a Kandinsky. A double, one painted on either side. One wild and vivid. The other somber and geometric. Chaos control. <laughs> Chaos control. And uh, what do, what is it about this movie that sticks with you? So I discovered this movie from watching the MTV program, The Big Picture. <laughs> I remember with Chris Conley. I remember The Big yeah. Picture. So they did this, you know, feature on Will Smith, who was on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air right. at the time, about his, you know, debut as a dramatic actor. Um, this was not a movie that I remember being at the Cineplex. <laughs> I don't think I had a chance to see it theatrically. But then I had remembered that Big Picture segment by the time I at my local blockbuster, there was like a VHS for sale for $4.99 oh, wow. or whatever. So I bought it, watched it, and then it became kind of a comfort movie for me where I like obsessively watch Six Degrees of Separation on VHS. Wow. What age are you when this is a comfort movie? 14. Yeah, okay. This tells us a lot. This tells us a lot. Uh, yeah, and, and what is it What is it that, that you that you took to about it, do you think, at that age? I just, the you know, the kind of first act, because it's based on a play, the first act of the movie almost entirely, or entirely, I think, takes place in the, in the living room of these rich people's apartment where they're entertaining their friend, Ian McKellen and then um Will Smith shows up and he has a, a knife wound and and I I don't think I had you, you were saying that you hadn't seen something plotless like Days and Confused I don't think I had seen a film that was able to kind of sustain one scene mm. for that long and I found that so magical um and you know I just yeah I think I was it was a f film that I was taking notice of on a storytelling level and a filmmaking level um, in ways in which, you know, maybe some of these movies, I, I wasn't necessarily thinking that way about Groundhog sure. Day. Sure. And one of the things that's really interesting, I think, about this film is is to look at it as an adaptation. Um, because weirdly, just through timing, I had, I, I did see this in the theater when it came out, maybe a month beforehand, um, the the local uh, college theater department had done Six Degrees of Separation. So it was like extremely fresh in my mind. I had friends that were in that show. And the ways in which Fred uh, Shapizzi adapts, because he's working, Guard did the screenplay, if I recall correctly. 
the ways in which he's adapting and making it a movie while still keeping the sort of staginess of it intact, it's a really fascinating hybrid, I think, in terms of the, the two art forms, um, in terms of, of keeping the sort of storytelling and the talking to the audience, but also, you know, not making it seem like a filmed play. Does this make any sense at all? No, totally. And also, I think the movie is um, kind of a marvel of editing, mm. especially later in the film where it's it takes kind of the structure of all these cocktail party conversations. Right. Um, but as the Donald Sutherland and Stockard Channing characters are telling these cocktail party anecdotes, it's kind of flashing back and forward in time to illustrate them. Um, and yeah, it's, I mean, it definitely, I think it makes the, it makes it, it makes the play cinematic while at the same time kind of forcing a cinema audience to at times um, experience the cadence of yes. theater. And have the kind of patience that a theater goer has to have. That totally mm-hmm. makes sense. Also, God damn it, Stalker Channing is so, so good in this movie. Um, before the slap last year, like a couple months before, I listened to the audiobook of Will Smith's autobiography, okay. which is fascinating and uh-huh. um, I highly recommend it. But I... I realized I, I hadn't actually seen Six Degrees of Separation in a long, long time, probably because I overdosed on it on VHS. <laughs> so I watched it, and I, I, it certainly holds up. And, you know, it, it's a very interesting performance for him. And Definitely. I do wish that um, he would do something more yeah. low-key yeah. like yeah. this again. I mean, he may as well. He's got nothing to lose at this point. <laughs> All right. A terrific Top five list, Karina. Thank you so much for putting that together for us. Um, Let's now find out what films were winning trophies and making money. Here's Mike with awards and box office. Sell out with me, oh yeah. Sell out with me tonight. Best picture, best director, Steven Spielberg. Best adapted screenplay to Steven Zalian? Zalian. Zalian. Schindler's List. Mm -hmm. Saw that movie once. Think that's going to be the once. Karina. I I know this is an awkward question to ask as we are recording this show on Passover, but um, Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on Schindler's List? Honestly, I haven't seen it since high school. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think much about Schindler's List. I don't think think of it often. Fair enough. Best actor went to Tom Hanks for Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a good motion picture. That's a fine performance. That was a look what Tom Hanks can do sort of moment. Sure. I I haven't revisited it since the 90s, but I enjoyed it then. Yeah. Good, good, good uh, Jonathan Demme direction. Good. Uh, more people looking into the lens as we talked about in <laughs> Silence of the Lambs in uh, the 91 episode. What else, Mike? Best actress to Holly Hunter. Best supporting actress to Anna Paquin. And best original screenplay to Jane Campion for The Piano. The piano rolls. The piano does roll. And I didn't get, uh, shockingly, as, you know, whatever I was, a 17-year-old high school boy, I didn't really get it the first time I watched it. And I I rewatched it when the Criterion 4K came out a couple years ago, and it just uh, knocked my fucking socks off. Yeah, Harvey Keitel. Yeah. How about that? (laughs) Good actor. Yeah. Like all of him, if I remember right. Yeah. That's all of Harvey. Yeah, that's this is what we call a brave performance because you can see his penis. (laughs) This was a period where he was doing that, I feel like, in several motion pictures. Yeah, at some point it becomes less brave, but (laughs) I also remember Anna Paquin being a big shocker that everyone thought Winona Ryder was gonna win supporting actress for um Age of Innocence. Age of Innocence, yeah. Yeah. How old was Anna Paquin in the piano? 
She was like ten. I think. Yeah, yeah, she was <laughs> yeah, very. She was very young and 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 sort of. Uh, endearingly nervous in that Oscar speech. That really yeah. is one of, one of the great slash most uncomfortable Oscar <laughs> speeches that there is. Well, she won the award that she deserved for Margaret. There you go. 20 years there earlier. Just want to <laughs> way in advance. Best Supporting Actor went to Tommy Lee Jones for The Goddamn Fugitive, bro. That movie was a big deal in 1993. It was a big deal. Boy, uncles were very excited about The Fugitive. (laughs) That is a movie that I did not see at the Cineplex Odeon. I saw at the Sherman Oaks Galleria. Oh, my goodness. A change in uh, in in routine. Oh, my God. Uh, And how do you feel about The Fugitive? I haven't rewatched it in a long time, but I loved it. I yeah. loved it in the 90s. It's still, I, I still love that he won an Oscar yeah. for that. I that, don't care. Yes, <laughs> it, it really, truly. I mean, he won and uh, Malkovich was nominated for In the Line of Fire that same year. And it really seems like, I think a thing that has changed is that performances like that in movies like that do not as typically get nominated. But there aren't anymore. movies like that. There aren't movies anymore. like that. That's a you fine know, point. Like the That's, equivalent yep. is Angela Bassett getting nominated for Wakanda Forever, right. but then that has to fight this battle of people not taking Marvel movies seriously, right. which they shouldn't. They're not real movies. <laughs> well said <laughs> and agreed. What else? Best Mike? foreign language film went to Belle Epoque. Have you seen Belle Epoque? I have not. I have not either, so we'll move on. Uh, I I threw one more in here, a category we never talk about, but that this just I'm sorry needed to be acknowledged. Mike, what else won an important Oscar? Best animated short film went to the wrong trousers, dude. The That's wrong a great trousers. Movie. Wallace and Gromit. That's a great movie. As, as a father of two, God bless Wallace and Gromit. <laughs> wrong trousers is All on right. YouTube. I watched it yesterday. I shit you it's not, great. I saw it on the list and I was like, oh my God, I think that's the Wallace and Gromit <laughs> with the pants. Yeah, that's a good sure movie. Is. You can watch it. Yes, you can. Uh, other significant award winners. Golden Globe for Best Picture Musical or Comedy and Best Actor Musical or Comedy went to Robin Williams for Mrs. Doubtfire. I remember that movie fondly. I rem- Mrs. Doubtfire was, a, as we'll see later, a giant, huge hit. Uh, Karina, how did you feel about Mrs. Doubtfire? I thought it was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was already too cool for Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> I think that that scans. That's that tracks. Golden Globe for Best Actress Musical or Comedy went to Angela Bassett for What's Love Got to Do with It. I will say, I guess we're really hitting musical in that musical or comedy because What's Love Got to Do with It is not a laugh right, but there are songs in it. And she's incredible. And it's about music. It is indeed. They're both really fucking great. In that's that a movie. great movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah, truly is. I, you, that's always the example I give uh, as an example of how you can be like a no-name day player in a movie and people will never forget you. The hotel manager in What's Love Got to Do With It <laughs> is a performance I think about at least once a month. Nice. That guy fucking crushed it. Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress went to Winona Ryder. And the BAFTA for Best Supporting Actress went to Miriam Magalius. Magalius? Magalius? We'll we'll fix it in post. I'm ruining this lady's name. I'm very sorry, Miriam. <laughs> what was she in? She were excellent in the Age of Innocence. Oh, the wow. Age of Innocence. I can't even place her. I can't. I can't either. How do you How do you sit on Age of Innocence? Love that movie. Really Love great. It. Yeah. Yeah. I wish uh, Wish Michelle Pfeiffer had won something. Yeah, she's spectacular in that movie. Um, yeah, that again was one where, like, you know, as a 17 year old Scorsese head, I wasn't quite ready for what he was doing in The Age of Innocence, but I appreciate it very much now. BAFTA for Best Actor went to Anthony Hopkins for The Remains of the Day. Great. The Remains of the Day. Fucking great. It's so, so good. good. It's so good. It's so buttoned up and so 
bursting with sensuality and <laughs> oh, uh, the two of them together are just yeah. fantastic. Christopher Reeve is awesome in that movie. He's really good in that. I forget he's in that. Great. Yeah, yeah. BAFTA for best original screenplay went to Danny Rubin for Groundhog Day. You're goddamn right it did. Nah. How about go. the BAFTAs for getting that one there right? There you go. Nice. BAFTA and Golden Globes for best foreign language film and tied for the Palme d'Or at Cannes with the piano for Farewell My Concubine. I have not seen Farewell My Concubine. Neither have I. All right, moving on. Hell of a poster. Okay. Uh, <laughs> domestic box office top 10. There were Here we go. some of these things we've talked about. Some of a them. A few of them. Number 10, though, Cliffhanger, baby. Cliffhanger. You know what? Uh, I'll own my meatheadedness that I, <laughs> at the time at least, very much enjoyed Cliffhanger. Never seen it. Good little diehard on a mountain. John Lithgow kind of kind of killing it as the villain. It's it's I, I enjoyed it in 1993. I remember the music being uh, exciting in that movie. Good, it was. Good, good music How could it editing. not be exciting? They were going to fall off a fucking right? mountain, Mike. You, you sort of part. That's of the a deal. dream assignment for a film composer. <laughs> Number nine, Schindler's List. Mm-hmm. Number eight, The Pelican Brief. Hey, how do we feel about The Pelican Brief? I haven't seen it in a long time, but I loved those John Grisham movies in the yeah. 90s. Yeah, as did I. As did I. He was on a run. Nice work by. Uh, yeah, he was. And it's a, a really nice chemistry between Julia and Denzel, even though they were not allowed to uh, kiss. To kiss. Yeah. It's interesting, too, that we referred to those as Grisham movies as if he directed them. <laughs> right. Right. But it was no, like. The great Alan J. You, yeah. The great Alan J. Pacula, a friend of the show, I think it's safe to say. It's come up several times. Fine job directing the Pelican. Yeah. Number seven in the line of fire. God, I love In the Line of Fire. I rewatched that a couple years ago. I haven't seen it. Oh my god, it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. It's it's. I think it's best. It's Clint Eastwood's best performance. Interesting. Like by by a nice long. Leap. I guess you haven't seen Bridges of Madison County. I, I have <laughs> seen the Bridges of Madison County. He's really good in that too. He's really good in that too. Uh, number six. Indecent proposal. We'll uh, we'll not spoil. I mean, massive you blockbuster. Have... I have lots to say about it. Lots mm-hmm. to say about it in an upcoming episode, I'm sure. Uh... You know, Woody Harrelson plays an architect who can't get a building built. If you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! Uh, number five, Sleepless in Seattle. Hey, Nora Ephron is Sleepless in Seattle. A big sum, big summer counter programming blockbuster. The chamomile tea yes. of movies. It is. Yeah. It's very comforting. Women like to go to the movies too, guys. We do. They do. <laughs> yes. Yes. Correct. It's a lovely, charming, funny. Hanks is great. Meg Ryan is so funny. God, yeah. Rosie O'Donnell? Yeah. Remember when Rosie O'Donnell would just be in like a lot of movies and just come in and be funny for a couple of scenes? Yeah. And then she got that. a talk show. Yeah, I know. It's one of those movies that you can be like, oh, yeah, I ain't really watching this movie. I've seen this movie before. And then like an hour and 20 minutes later, you're just like, oh, that was such a nice movie. Like you just, yes, yes, it was. you know, yeah. Number four, <laughs> The Firm. Now, here's the thing. Uh, Karina, where, where do you land on The Firm? I, w- I was a big Firm fan, although um, tragedy struck because I remember watching The Firm at the Century City Mall. And looking at Gene Triplehorn and being like, I got to do something about my eyebrows. <laughs> so I went home, overplucked oh, no. my eyebrows, and they never grew back. Oh, my God. So so the, the connotations of the firm now are are not solid. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> to, right. I'm, I'm sorry if it's if right, you're coming up. I mean, up. this is the, you know, the kind of consequences. <laughs> going, to, going to the movies and being... 
incredibly impressionable. <laughs> I'm sorry if it's number four place in the movies of 93 was triggering for you in any way, Karina. I'm sorry. I played a role in it's box office. No, I'm not. The Firm's good. The Firm is good. It's Sidney Pollack doing the thing. It's got a great ensemble cast. Uh, it's a way better ending than the book. All right. Number three, The Fugitive. Very good, as we've said. Number two, Mrs. Doubtfire. Kind of lame, as we said. And number one. Jurassic Park, oh, yeah, three hundred and forty-six million nineteen ninety-three dollars in Domestic. domestics alone. Domestic three forty-six. I think million. that counts Canada, but <laughs> they made lots of money <laughs> made, elsewhere too. Made lots of greenbacks. All right, thank you, Mike, for the uh, for the Oscars. Like he invented the blockbuster, and then he invented the second wave of blockbusters. Yes. This guy is like, yeah, he knows he I knows mean, how to make a movie yeah. that makes the money. It's true. Yeah. All right, Karina, you want to do a little lightning round? Sure. All right, we're going to put five minutes on the clock. We're going to bang through a bunch of 93 titles. Uh, just say something quick if you have something to say about each. And so it like, if is it like good, bad, or like a sentence? You can, either way. You okay. can do kind of whatever you want to do. Okay. All right, here we go. Five minutes on the big clock, Mike. And we're off. Dave. I love Dave. Madonna in Body of Evidence. She's trying her best. <laughs> the Temp. I think The Temp's really fun. The Crush. I'm I'm not a big crush head. Three of Hearts. Three of Hearts is weird. <laughs> I I mean thumbs thumbs sideways closer to up though. Fatal Instinct. Uh yeah I can't. <laughs> Falling down. Oh God, that's all. <laughs> Harold Becker's Malice. Oh Malice, yeah, kind of. Uh, it's just you know Godhead Alec Baldwin and. We have weird th- feelings about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, d- to to his credit, he doesn't say panties with a weird hard T. So, <laughs> no, you're Baldwin. Wins, yeah. He wins the battle of the Baldwins in '93. <laughs> Guilty of sin. Uh, I haven't seen that one. Is that Don Johnson? Haven't mm-hmm. seen it. All right, all right. I tried to lead with the erotic yeah. thrillers here. Uh, David Cronenberg's and Butterfly. I don't think I've seen that. Brian De Palma's Carlito's Way. Great movie. When I wrote a book about Al Pacino for French people, they were very upset I didn't include it. <laughs> the French love Carlito's love Way. Love Carlito's Way. They do. Well, they love De Palma. They do. That's well, they should. Fine filmmaker. What's Eating Gilbert Grape? I saw that a lot. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, yeah, I was over, too old for Titanic, by the t- too old for like being part of Leomania for right. Titan- Titanic. I had my Leomania like, with uh, What's Eating Gilbert Grape and Basketball Diaries. Dangerous Game by Abel Ferrara. Oh, I have that on DVD, but I haven't watched it yet. It's worth seeing. Madonna, it's, I know Madonna's in it. Madonna's really good in it. It's basically bad director, but it's, it's, it's worth <laughs> seeing. She's trying her best. She's she's trying her best. Uh, Clint Eastwood and Kevin Costner in A Perfect World. I haven't seen it. Hocus Pocus. I thought that was dumb. Adam's Family Values. Loved it. Great little film. I love Barry Sonnenfeld. I do too. His autobiography is the best audiobook you'll ever listen to. <laughs> do are you with me that Adam's Family Values superior to the first Adam's Family? Um, I think I'd have to watch them back to back in order okay. to make a qualitative judgment. All right, there. you can get back to me on that. Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness. Army of Darkness. Never seen it. I'm oh. not. I'm not into Raimi. Fair enough. Uh, Peter Weir's Fearless. I like Fearless a lot, and I was at the Governor's Awards where they gave him a Lifetime Achievement recently, and he stood up and said, I don't have a speech, and was just like wearing a scarf and just kind of talked for 25 minutes, and I think most people in the room were like, get this guy off the stage, but I loved it. (laughs) That's great. Great scarf. Tony Scott's True Romance. Oh, um, 
Yeah, I liked this in the 90s, but I've never rewatched it. Uh, also featuring a young actor by the name of Brad Pitt, mm-hmm. California with a K. Never saw it. Demolition Man. Never saw it. Robert Altman's Shortcuts. Love it. Robert De Niro's A Bronx Tale. Never saw it. Although Chaz Palminteri is, uh, you know, in this movie Jade, which I mm-hmm. talk about. Mm-hmm. And that made me kind of want to watch A Bronx Tale. A Bronx Tale's real good. Um, Robert De Niro and the aforementioned Bill Murray in Mad Dog and Glory. I haven't seen it, but it comes up a lot in um, when, like, there were trend stories about Indecent Proposal and about how, like, why are all the movies about selling women? Uh-huh. It's worth it's worth checking out. Uh, Robert De Niro in This Boy's Life with the aforementioned Leonardo DiCaprio. I missed that one. Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, not directed by Tim Burton. Yeah, I, I was kind of a quasi-goth, so I was really into this in 1993. Boz Lerman's Strictly Ballroom. That was something I saw a lot on cable later, but I enjoyed it. Swing Kids. Never saw it. In the Name of the Father, starring Daniel Day-Lewis and Emma Thompson. Never saw it. Shadowlands, starring Anthony Hopkins as C.S. Lewis. Oh, yeah. Deborah Winger, too. Yeah, I watched that when I was on a Deborah Winger kick a while ago. I can't Mm -hmm. remember it very well, though. Uh, Mike Lee's Naked. Yeah, great. Blue. Oh, as in red, white, blue? Uh, Yes. Great. Uh, Joe Dante's Matinee. Oh, I, I made a an early film critic action in walking out of Matinee. Wow. A formative moment. Uh, Macaulay Culkin in The Good Son. Oh, yeah, I didn't see that. <laughs> uh, the uh, the Western adventure Tombstone. Is that Lawrence that's Kasdan? I'm, no, that's the, uh, that's the George oh. Cosmatos with uh, Val Kilmer as... as uh, uh, right. Is Jason White. Priestley in that one? Yes. I think maybe I rented it because I was into Jason Priestley, but I don't know that I ever finished it. And finally, uh, John Badham's remake of La Femme Nikita, Point of No Return. Oh, I didn't see that. Okay, well, we're not going to go out with one you didn't see. Um, John Singleton's Poetic Justice. Oh, I loved that. I was I, That one I saw three times at the Cineplex Odeon. Nice. Okay, going out with a bang. Thank you, Karina. <laughs> excellent, excellent. See, that's a, uh, this is going to be... Thank you. That's how I'm going to send people as an example of the lightning round of how you bang. That's how the lightning round is supposed to work. Bang through a fucking lightning round. Yes. All right. Also, you can tell a professional podcaster because their sense of timing is. (laughs) She knows when the clock is running down before I do. And now we're going to throw it to our friend W. Axel Foley for a quick PSA. Head on over to your favorite podcasting app. Give us a star, a rate, a review. Give us a written review and tell us that you love us because that's what lets people know that we're here. All right, Karina, where can people follow you on social media? I'm at Karina Longworth, and you can follow the podcast on Twitter at Remember This Pod. And it's on Instagram and Facebook as well. And then, of course, you can just find the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. And you should. <laughs> Season two of the erotic series, Erotic 90s, currently underway. Highly recommended. I can't imagine you're listening to this show if you're not <laughs> listening to that one. But if you're not, fucking get on it. Um, I am Fun City Cinema on Instagram, Jason Dash Bailey on Twitter and Letterboxd, where don't forget you can find every top five list for every show to date. Mike, where can people find you? I am at Brainwashed Lib on Twitter. And Mike, before we go, what is your favorite movie of 1993? I just, I think I got to go with Bronx Tale, man. Like you were so obsessed with Goodfellas uh-huh. at that time. I was. And like, and then, and and you were right, <laughs> you know, a great movie. And then I saw Bronx Tale and I was just kind of, it just felt so different mm-hmm. than Goodfellas, but also like a prequel to, I don't know, man. It just like, it, it, I feel like I sort of learned a lot about how 
the same story could be told in a different way. Yeah. Um, so it just it was it just is a really sweet mm-hmm. gangster movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. It's just such a great movie, and, and it's one of those is, ones that I can just watch over and over. De Niro is a highly underrated director. He directs the shit out of that movie, and you can see how Scorsese has influenced him, and also how he's kind of got his own directorial style. I love that movie. Yeah. I still love that movie. I also really love Carlito's Way. I have to say the you know like um yeah. you know the sort of part two of. Of uh, you know anyway yeah the sequel we've had that conversation we many have. times off podcast what's your favorite movie of ninety three my runner up would also probably be Carlito's Way but I got to go with the other Steven Zalian movie of nineteen ninety three which is Searching for Bobby Fisher uh, which I said at the time was my favorite movie of ninety three and I recently rewatched it as a father of a child who is playing in chess tournaments and goddamn Searching for Bobby Fisher is so good it's so good it's so heartwarming it's so smart and intelligent. And uh, uh, reasonable about com- competition and, and brilliance and how to be a good person. And Joe Montaigne's in it and Joan Allen's in it. It's the first thing I'd seen her in. And William H. Macy's. It's just, it's it, searching for Bobby Fisher is really, really good. Um, and so there we go. Thank you. Yeah, you made me watch it in 1993. Yeah, and I, again, you were right. I was right. <laughs> thank you again, Karina. Sure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. It was a very good year